This episode was made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 123 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Philip K. Dick's 1956 short story and Steven Spielberg's 2002 film, Minority Report. So James, here we are back in the world of Philip K. Dick uh, for the first time, I think, since Blade Runner uh, and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Um, we read this short story. Um, I, I assume for you it was the first time. It definitely was for me. And then we revisited a film that I think both of us have seen before. Um, what was your experience like? It's interesting um, because I don't think that I ever thought of Minority Report in the sa- along the same lines as Blade Runner. But this time with the connection to Philip K. Dick and reading the short story specifically um, made me realize just how similar these, these stories can, could, can be and are. Yeah, yeah, definitely sort of the the crime element, right? Like the detective, the it's almost hard-boiled in a sense. Um, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Rick Deckard, for sure. Um, and yeah, I agree. I I even felt like there was like some homages to uh, to Blade Runner, or maybe I was just picking up on that. But it felt like Spielberg was sort of aware that this was at least associated with Blade Runner, or could be. Just a couple of things. The emphasis on the eyes was oh, yeah. huge in this. So, like, that's a massive connection there. Um, and, you know, the original stories are from the same source. So it, it is interesting, though, because I think when Spielberg kind of put his own spin on it and changed things, it took it away from being as similar to Blade Runner as it, as it could have been. Um, and I actually read that this, the when this was when this movie was in pre-production, when they were starting to develop this, this movie, um, they were they were wanting it to be a sequel to Total Recall, which also was wow. Philip K. Dick, right? Yeah, I believe so. That that's like kind of where where this story began for the, for the movie, and then it just developed over time. And Steven Spielberg eventually got his hands on it, and uh, and then it changed dramatically. I'm I'm really curious about the the production that went into this movie, um, and and I do want to talk about it because I think. In many ways, I really like this movie. I really enjoy it, and I really actually love this movie. And then in other ways, I'm frustrated with it. And I, I kind of want to get into like the reasons that I think there are things that are holding it back. And, and I'm, I'm excited to get into those. But before we do, I want to give this short story its due, because I'd never read it before. Um, read it for the first time here. And what about you? Have you ever read anything from Philip K. Dick back in the 1956 area? <laughs> Uh, just one. <laughs> and, and like, I, I constantly do think about how do androids dream of electric sheep is such a sick title for, for a novel or like yeah. a short story, whatever that was. Yeah. It, it's a mouthful, but it's cool for sure. It's very cool. And it, it was written later. Um, it, I think that was in the sixties. So this, this okay. was earlier, this was earlier, earlier on in his career. Um, I think towards the very beginning of it when he was still, I think mostly doing short fiction, he won the Hugo award, uh, for, Man in High Castle, um, which is another adaptation that's that's doing pretty well right now. I understand I've never actually seen any of the show, um, but I think he won the Hugo for that in the '60s as well, like '63, if I'm pulling that date off the top of my head right. Um, so this was be- this was before that, 
And it feels to me like he was still sort of cutting his teeth and finding his way um, with the writing. Um, I think in general, after after reading, now I've only read two things, right? Like all of Delandre's Dream and then and then this short story. But I'm finding that I have mixed feelings about his writing. Um, I, I I totally respect that he was brilliant um, in his ideas. And I think, you know, you'd look at the the meat of the ideas that he's putting into these sci-fi stories and they're so rich and, and there's so much to draw on, I think for, and that's why there's so many Philip K. Dick adaptations um, mm-hmm. that it makes sense. But he also, I don't know if it was maybe he, cause he was trying to write in that sort of uh, hard boiled mode, um, maybe being affected by other writers at the time. Cause I know in the fifties, I think the hard boiled detective fiction was very popular um, but that style of writing to me feels very sparse and I often would struggle to feel fully involved in the scenes and like f- feel like I, I, I could really picture everything that was going on. And then I also would struggle to connect emotionally with our main character and some of the other characters around him. So those two things combined can make it kind of a difficult read. And I remember having a little bit of that with Do Android's Dream, but I think I, I think I found a way into that character that I never really felt with Anderton here with John Anderton. I, 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 the whole time I felt a little bit removed from him in a way that was keeping me from fully enjoying the story. Big picture. I think he has some of the most interesting setups for, for these sci-fi stories. And then just the execution, like the, the actual like nitty gritty dialogue and, and the, like the, the goings on isn't really that engaging. Like, it, like you said, it doesn't really like live up to what the potential of the story could have been. Mm-hmm. And I definitely felt that with the short story. And I think maybe that's, part of why some things were changed Spielberg changed some things in the in the movie um and I'll be interested to hear if you think there were improvements or you know just kind of a wash or how you felt on them yeah I, I regardless before we get into the actual film um I was really thinking about like how this this story was very you know ripe for an adaptation um because it had such great ideas and because there were it felt like there was a lot of building blocks here that maybe hadn't fully been played with and hadn't fully been explored. So I love the idea of taking it, taking a short story and adapting it to a full length film and really diving into a lot more than you get in the story and um, getting into, you know, more of the morality and the ethics of the situation and even some of the philosophy behind it. Um, it, it just felt like there was, there was so much there that I, in the short story, I was kind of amazed. I'm like, really? They're not going to like, they're not going to engage with this kind of stuff. They're just going to kind of gloss over it. Um, and I remember being a bit frustrated with it and then going like, well, if, if I was a filmmaker and I was looking for something to adapt, yeah, like this classic piece of sci-fi that has a really interesting idea, but feels underdeveloped in some ways, seems like a perfect target, right? Of like, I can take this and do more with it. Um, so right. in that sense, I, I think it was a good choice. Um, I don't necessarily agree with everything Spielberg did um, or think that it was all a good idea, but um, I like a lot of what happens in the movie, which we'll have to get to. But yeah, no, okay. thoughts on that? I just, well, I don't want to say too much about the movie right off the top because we're going to talk about the short story here, but I think um, Spielberg t- used this as an opportunity to kind of lean into some of the, the movies that shaped him like you know i've said on this podcast before that he's a clearly huge student of of hitchcock and like the sort of mystery elements that are in this mixed with the sci-fi elements um i read that he was really excited to sort of blend those genres and like dive into noir like basically the roots of 
a noir story with like the, the hard-boiled detectives that are kind of morally ambiguous like you don't really know where they are uh what they're gonna do and that sort of like mysteries on top of mysteries on top of mysteries mixed with this sci-fi element um yeah i think i think it was really cool and i think something that just keeps jumping into my head that i want to that i want to get out there is i talked about the eyes a little bit you know the moment when uh he's having the surgery to have his eyes removed and swapped out yeah those sort of clamps that were like pulling his eyes apart yeah were was such an homage to clockwork orange like it's so clearly like it, it was so cool that he did that um and knowing that this was after he he directed he finished ai which kubrick started and sort of like you know, he was friends with Kubrick. He was okay. he loved Kubrick. I, I was the, unclear of the timeline of that. This this came after that or after AI? Yeah. Oh, okay. Interesting. Actually, this movie this movie was uh, slightly delayed because filming went long on AI, and Tom Cruise had filming go long on Mission Impossible Two. So this got pushed a little bit. Hmm. It was going to come originally. It was supposed to come out sooner, and like development was supposed to begin on it sooner. Okay. Well, I got a lot of ideas and a lot of opinions about the film but first let's talk about this short story i have a two paragraph summary i figure i'll read maybe in just in the two parts and we can sort of get into some of the nitty-gritties of the story let's do it so john anderton is the founder and head of pre-crime which stops future crimes from occurring by gathering data from three precogs humans gifted with precognition now reduced to caged quote idiot savants as, as their babble is recorded and collated the The day that a new assistant, Ed Whitwer, joins, Anderton receives a report that he will commit a murder of an army general he does not know, Leopold Kaplan. Anderton confronts Kaplan, who harbors doubts about pre-crime, and goes on the run with Kaplan's help. Anderton is chased by pre-crime agents and tries to escape with Lisa, who is also an agent. Okay, so that's the first paragraph. I have two. But let's stop there and talk a little bit about the setup of this and some of the key differences, right? Do you want to talk about differences from the film already? Well, I mean, both of us are coming in as, as film viewers, right? Who Like, I've seen this yeah. movie multiple times. And right. coming in to read this, like, the, immediately I was like, well, this is different and this is different. Um, so it was, I guess it was at the forefront of my mind. Um, but yeah, I mean, this 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 is a very different uh, John Anderton here. Um, he's, you know, much older, um, not as, you know, he's not an action movie star like we get in the, in the movie. And, um, he's kind of a tool of the state. There's some really interesting things going on with like authoritarianism and sort of law enforcement and freedom that it feels like almost like it's only scratching the surface of it. Like it's presenting all these things, um, as potential points of contention or things to think about. Um, and, and I find that to be some of the most fascinating parts. And it's interesting because it feels to me very strongly like John Anderton really believes in this system. And then, of course, it, it creates this really nice drama when he's the one implicated in a murder that he doesn't believe he's going to commit. It seems in the source material, um, maybe Spielberg split the character of John, John Anderton and, and kind of created the director above him in the film, where it's like he's sort of... Um, what he has to lose basically is the fact that in the in the source material in the original story john anderton is so invested in the pre-crime stuff because he's sort of the creator yeah whereas in the movie he's not but the director seemingly is so invested in it because he wants it to continue and he wants it to spread nationwide in the movie um so it's kind of like taking his character rather than the the principal role of like 
basically overseeing everything to being like sort of some a cog in the machine. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting to see the John Anderton who is invested to the point that he would, you know, potentially commit a murder in order to get pre to, to have like the precog program continue. Right. Um, because it is so successful. Right. Which is what he ends up doing essentially at the end. Um, yeah, yeah. I, 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 essentially, uh, Spielberg used sort of a, a common tactic of creating a, a villain who is sort of a foil. You have this opposite character, um, and they both want the same thing, but they're going about it different ways, right? And in the film, Anderton, um, he also believes in pre-crime. You know what I mean? Like, he he is all for it. Um, and But then we realize that there is lines he won't cross in order to have this dream, whereas the his, his opposite is willing to cross those lines and has crossed those lines uh, in the same pursuit. So th- there's that difference that can create the, the friction there. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the story, um, just a few things I want to mention is, for one, the 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 precogs themselves feel so underutilized. Um, and partly mm-hmm. it's because I've seen the movie and I know that they're a big part of the story. But like... Um, I don't know if you if maybe you know if you want to grant him the subtext of it like he the way they're just so dismissive of them calling them idiots and just like mm-hmm. completely dehumanizing them and they're just tools don't think of them as human beings like all this stuff and then that never really goes anywhere that's just kind of how they're treated the whole time yeah like it wasn't even like it's supposed to be some sort of like um you know, there's not like a subtext to it. There's not like some sort of like comparison being drawn or anything well, like there, that. He's basically. Just- I'll grant that there could be. It's just he doesn't. Like, in his his world is very unjust. It's like how do you feel about pre crime because it continues on and they're still sort of enslaved to the system at the end. Um, but what, what, I think what I mean is that like specifically our main character never thinks anything other than the fact that they're trash. So like within the world, yeah, they're basically yeah. like he's he's just saying like this is how it is, and you yeah. know they are idiots and they aren't. Worthless. You have to bring that as a reader to yeah. the story because there's not right. really any characters espousing that point of view in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I agree with that, and and, and it made it difficult because that was something I was thinking about a lot. And then, and then we have this Whitwer character who so, kind of does some similar things to the Whitwer we get in the in the movie. But one of the things that I found sort of, I don't know, just kind of astounding <laughs> was how quickly Anderton turns on his wife <laughs> immediately. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Like, that he's was like, a really weird relationship. As soon as Whitwer brings up, like, the thing happens, he's like, well, my wife is behind this. <laughs> like, yeah, like, clearly there's some baggage there. Well, and then I was reminded that uh, Philip K. Dick had was married five times. Uh, um, and his first couple marriages were very brief. Um, I believe this is during his second marriage, if, if, if I'm getting that right. Um, and a lot of them were incredibly messy. Um, potentially, there was one time where he he was accused of trying to kill one of his wives, but then later said that it was like some sort of misunderstanding or something. But it was he tried to drive off a cliff or something with her in the car. All kinds of crazy stuff. Um, the guy was a mess, and he, uh, it seems like his relationships are all a mess, so it wouldn't shock me if he had some issues that he was bringing to, to the table here, because um, I just remember there was some stuff like that in Do Android's Dream that was a little weird, and then, and then you're getting that again Definitely. here, and it's the only two things we've read by him, so I'm starting to see a pattern already. Uh, mm. of how he's going to treat the women in his stories because um, it feels very much like she's out to get me you know immediately leaps to that and then and then it's like she kind of is not really but she kind of is i don't know she does kind of betray him at that one point and that's his wife lisa 
uh, who he he does immediately tell about the thing, but then he doesn't trust her. So it was weird. It's like, why are you telling her if you don't trust her? Um, and then she she tries to turn him in and all this stuff. Um, let me go ahead and read the second paragraph here, and then we can just kind of talk about the rest of it. Anderton knows two precogs confirm a precrime before it is pursued, but there is often a dissenting minority report from the third precog. However, the prediction of Anderton's murder is supposed to change when Anderton discovers the news, changing the significance of the minority report. Kaplan has manipulated events so that precrime will fall to a restrengthened army headed by Kaplan. Discovering this, Anderton decides to actually murder Kaplan, thus saving precrime. With Lisa, he accepts his punishment and goes into exile. And that's the, basically the end. So, yeah, I mean, he he goes through a journey. He's got he's got these army guys after him. Um, Kaplan is the general who he's never met, but he meets with. And then he finds out about this minority report. But then there's the revelation that it isn't actually doesn't actually exist for him. Um, and instead, there's three different reports. Um, if I remember correctly, that each are like came about at like a different phase. So like there's the initial one showing him murdering him. And then there's a second one where it's reflecting like once he found out this information, he no longer was going to kill him. And then there's mm-hmm. a third one that shows him like coming around back to the idea of killing him to save pre-crime and sort of all three exist. Um, right. Yeah, it was kind of bizarre and and really was showed how just uncertain, although it seems very tied to to gaining the information. Like the implication is if you don't know about this report, like if you don't know you're going to you're supposed to commit a murder, then you won't change your mind. Like you can't mm-hmm. avoid it. But having the foreknowledge creates the opportunity for you to not commit the crime. Um, which wastes all sorts of ethical quandaries that I felt like the story didn't really deal with, but but mm-hmm. kind of presented. We've talked a lot about like free will and determinism on the podcast, especially like within the past year. Yep. And the idea that I've that I've kind of always said talked about is like you know even if you did we've we've talked about like even if you did know your future it's it's like you it's not po- sometimes it's not possible to change it or you wouldn't want to change it or things would still end up the same way anyway well that's how some some of the fiction we've been discussing right that's, that's what right. it proposes yeah whereas here th- this idea seems somewhat i don't know because i mentioned in our arrival coverage how like i just feel like if like i knew someone was gonna die or something and you didn't do anything about it, you know, like like the knowledge of knowing that they were going to die might change your mind on it. Like like there's something there's something about knowing what's going to mm-hmm. happen. This story specifically bringing up the idea that like if you have this report, it's going to change what the options are, the outcome. I thought was actually kind of interesting and and it seemed kind of real like uh, realistic to me mm-hmm. in a way. Now I'm going to do a terrible job of explaining this, but when I went and listened to Ted Chang speak um, he did a presentation here in Portland, and he talked about time travel. Ted Chang, the the author of Story of Your Life, the the short story that Arrival's based off of, right? Yes, that's correct. And he, one of the things he talked about was time travel in pop culture. And um, I don't know if you really thought about this, but this is a time travel story. Um, and the reason being that anytime you have prophecy, that is information traveling backward through time to you. And mm. essentially that's what ha- that's what's happening with these precogs. So you create paradoxes. Anytime you have backwards time travel, you essentially create paradoxes like I think almost always. And 
what you're talking about creates a paradox because if you are going to commit a crime and then you go back in time and you learn about the information that this crime is going to occur and then it doesn't happen anymore, then it then it didn't happen. So how did you learn about it? You know what I mean? Um, so so you're, it creates a paradox. Um, there's no there's no on ramp to this loop you have now created. It either right. always has been this way or it always wasn't this way. How did how do you how do you get onto that? And that's kind of always the issue with with time travel like this mm-hmm. it's fascinating and one of his points and i'm going to do it not do it justice was essentially that it reflects what we like to how we like to feel as a society and what we value and americans in particular really value the idea of free will and this story backs up the idea of free will so it feels comforting to our sensibilities and that's one of the reasons why i think this version of time travel if you want to call it that feels sort of right to us, or at least isn't something that's challenging, because it feels intuitive that, yeah, of course I can change my future. That backs up the idea that I am not fated, you know what I mean? That my fate isn't fixed. Right. We all want to believe that. The, this idea that, like, as humans, like, thinking that we have no sort of free will or thinking that we, thinking that everything is determined feels kind of trapped. You feel kind of trapped sometimes, and so, yeah. like, in a story like this, you're like, exactly. You're like, of course I could change my future because... X, Y, and Z. Right. And, and you know, it, it's it's definitely fascinating. And I think all different forms of time travel stories, which I'm going to continue to call this, um, <laughs> as long as they're internally consistent with how it works, I think they're valuable because and, and they're valid because when you're exploring sci-fi, you get to take the impossible and make it possible and, and, and engage mm-hmm. with it as if it could happen. And so as long as you're internally consistent, I have no, no trouble with it. So I actually, one of the things I want to give this story props for um, is that I didn't have trouble buying into the premise and mm-hmm. the, the execution of it. Um, it seemed internally consistent, and I was able to buy into this narrative. Um, what I think is really interesting is the way that it affects sort of law enforcement and government here, and then the ethical quandary of arresting people for crimes that they um, haven't committed, Um on the assumption that they will commit them. And then you take that further. And the implication of the short story is that if we were to just share with them, Hey, you're going to commit this murder. It would give them an opportunity to change. Right. Yet that choice is, is taken away from them, even though Anderton does get it and is able to, to possibly change although he doesn't go through with it um, to preserve the system because he wants the system in place. So to me, that gets around to, uh, I think, which is a big question for both of these. And that is like a question that I think we're asking all the time in our society. And it's, um, security versus freedom, right? Like how much of my freedom am I willing to give away in order to have security and to feel safe? And this system is has lowered the the crime rates dramatically almost to zero i think it's all felonies and actually in the short stories um and the trade-off being that maybe some people are being imprisoned for crimes that they wouldn't have committed had you shared that information with them um and john seems to believe that that is something that is that is worth it ultimately to society and it's kind of scary, though, when you think about it that way, right? And it's the kind of decisions you can see being made. Um, and then I, I would say that the movie kind of comes down on a different, a different side of that question. Um, right. So it, it's, that's one of the fundamental changes, I think, that Spielberg made 
um, and how how he felt about the idea of pre-crime and 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 what ends up happening at the end of the movie. Um, so yeah, what 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 did you think about for the story and and sort of the um, the built like the, the the maintaining of the system was that supposed to be in your opinion like we were supposed to be like thinking that that was right and that feeling like the right thing happened the just thing happened or are we supposed no, to be you, worried about it yeah i think i think the story is is one of paranoia like i think he wrote this story th- wanting to raise these sort of red flags for people i think that the ending reflects this idea that like if it gets too far or too out of hand or or whatever there's no going back. You know what I mean? Like once you've given up a certain amount of certain amount of freedom, like you're not going to be able to gain that back in any sort of way. So seeing the story end like this and like having the system continue, I think is meant to have you think about what, what you're giving up or like the, you know, the freedoms that you give up in order to feel safer. It makes me think of like, um, uh, if you have like a ring doorbell, you know, like mm-hmm. that's your front door. Every time you walk through, there's a camera and there have been cases where these are getting hacked. So it's like, sure. that's like the safety around your house is, is being given at the cost of every time you walk through your front door, there's a potential that someone's hacked it or privacy, you know, you're talking privacy. About. Yeah. You're trading, you're trading security for privacy at that point, which is definitely so, a trade off we're, we're making all the time. Exactly. And I think that that um, is, is at the heart. I think he's very ahead of his time in thinking like this. And maybe, you know, paranoia of the time was was part of the reason why he wrote this story. But I think it was it definitely he come. I think as the author, he comes down saying this is bad. Anderton had all this stuff happen to him and then ultimately still commits the crime to to keep the status quo right. and to have everything remain the same. Um while everyone else who's being affected by it doesn't really understand that like all of these struggles went on and there's all these like there's all these loopholes that people can potentially um you know the minority reports aren't common knowledge so everybody else who's being like all these people who are being policed by this system have have no sort of you know knowledge that there's anything there's any other way and i think it's just his way of having people think more critically about that kind of thing yeah and and i think i think that is um a generous way to read this story and one I tend to agree with. Um, I I haven't, like I said, I haven't read a ton of Philip K. Dick and, and I know that he is known for sort of these, um, big society wide questions about technology and, and how it, you know, could intersect with, with day to day life. So I tend to read it that way as well. Um, but we have got to move into this movie if we're gonna have time to talk about it. So if you're ready to take it away, I want to hear about this film, how it came to be and any little details you have about it. And I'd love to hear. So you mentioned how you thought that the movie and Spielberg specifically with this movie came down a little differently on sort of like the messages behind it. And I, I found a quote that I wanted to read that it was Spielberg talking about his ideas of the film's technology. Um, and he said, this to Roger Ebert before the movie was released. He said, I wanted all the toys to come true someday. I want there to be a transportation system that doesn't em- emit toxins into the atmosphere and the newspaper that updates itself. The, the internet is watching us now if they want to. They can see what sites you visit. In the future, television will be watching us and customizing itself to what it knows about us. The thrilling thing is that will make us feel we're part of the medium. The scary thing is we'll lose our right to privacy and ad will appear in the air around us talking directly to us. Yeah. And that's come to pass. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and this is 2002, 2001, 2002. So, so it was starting um, to happen, I think in that time, but it, you know, it is hugely prevalent now. 
yeah, and we were talking about the privacy that we've given up at this point. And I just constantly think about like Alexa's in your home and mm-hmm. just so you can turn the lights on and off. Convenience. And, like, you know, <laughs> it's just convenience mixed with like the sort of feeling of safety. And I, I think this movie brings up a lot of that. Um, and I wonder if the, the maybe the gripes you have, I wonder if Spielberg was aware that people would feel that way. But, but um, you know, in service of the story and to kind of do right by the story, I wonder what, what parts he... Uh, fabricated in order to you know tell a certain narrative Mm. not necessarily one that people would agree with but i wanted to mention just a little bit of stuff here and there um of course john williams is back to score a steven spielberg film this isn't the first time that he's scored a spielberg film or the first time we've covered spielberg so i won't talk too much about him but um i think there were some some stylistic decisions that were made with this movie that are interesting to talk about there's a lot of um you know, world building that went on that wasn't necessarily in the in the short story that they had to kind of flesh out the world with. Famously, the sort of three dimensional like d- conducting an orchestra, sort of the yeah. way that he manipulates space with the the precogs um, visions and everything like that is pretty iconic for this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I love John Williams and I think he does great work, but uh, I don't think this is a film where the score particularly stood out to me as being particularly memorable. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. You know, I mean, so. there's there's moments that I think are good, but I, I agree that it's not something I'm humming or anything. Yeah, like it that. doesn't have like a like a hook. That it feels like oh, that's very Minority Report. Like there's nothing like that. I don't know. Maybe I just need to listen to it on its own. But it kind of blended into the background for the most part for me. I think there's some, you know, maybe it's maybe it's also John Williams saying like I want something to be very subtle that will, you know, subliminally give people messages to have how to feel during the movie, but isn't going to be something that's so grand and they walk away singing or anything like that because maybe it doesn't feel like that kind of movie. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Okay, so I mentioned style wise, uh, this movie. I actually I'll ask you first, like what okay. what do you do notice in this movie style wise as far as like how it's shot? It feels like the colors are very desaturated. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it feels like the, uh, like the white levels are very elevated, um, so much to where like certain scenes, especially I'm thinking like when they're outside, um, or in, in like alleyways and stuff, often it would get like, uh, like, um, I was washed out. It would be hard to like see anything in a way that I actually felt was kind of detrimental, um, but felt very much like some sort of stylized choice, mm-hmm. um, to evoke something. Um, that was something I was a little frustrated with. Um, I, I didn't hate it throughout and sometimes I thought it worked fine, but, um, it maybe was a little too much. Like they needed to dial it back a little in my opinion. Yeah, I kind of agree. I think that there were decisions that were made for specific reasons. In this case, you're, you're correct in saying that like, um, intentionally they washed out some of the, the, some of the whites are very over, you know, exposed, um, right? overexposed and there's yeah. and it, there's a lot of sharpness to the, to the light too like if so, like like it almost like hurts your eyes sometimes mm-hmm. to look at it and uh and it just doesn't feel natural and i think that that's part of it is like not feeling natural um making it feel like abnormal and i think there's also something about the fact that like this is very clearly a neo-noir f- story like yeah. this is like post world war ii noir like all that stuff that went on with with noir back in the, the 30s and 40s and or I guess 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, you know, that was such a huge movement for film and, and like a detective story. Like you cannot make a detective story that isn't influenced by film noir at this point. So is this like their way of not making it black and white, but kind of evoking f- a black and white feel? Well, so contrast is very important in film noir, right? Like the contrast between the darks and the and the lights and this sort of like 
the way, you know, people typically think it's very shadowy. Noir is very shadowy. And mm -hmm. I wonder if this was a way to make it like anti-shadowy, like the opposite of shadowy would be like very overexposed, very light. Mm -hmm. um, but also sort of having this same like ambiguous characters and morally ambiguous characters and, and having a lot of the hallmarks. Um, and, and there is like, you know, in sci-fi, certain sci-fi, there's like your gritty sci-fi, but there's also like the sci-fi that's that is well lit. There's something something futuristic feeling sometimes about like a very well lit room or something maybe like surgical right. or something like that. And I think like that all, all together kind of kind of makes me think um, those were the stylistic the decisions that were being made. But I also heard that there was a certain technique that was used on the film because this was shot on film. Um, and this was a time when digital was really taking off. A lot of people were shooting early digital films. Hmm. They over, so they overlit these shots and then desaturated the col colors as we talked about. But then they, in order to do that, they bleached the film, the film's negatives to make, to sort of add that extra texture. So wow. like the, once the film was, uh, was shot, they took the negatives and then bleached them and, and that sort of gave more gray and more um as you talked about like there's not a ton of color in this movie and if it is it's like blues and grays and whites and things mm -hmm. like that um so they treated the film which which i always think is interesting um and it's such a um bold decision to just be like this thing that i shot that looks great we're gonna we're gonna do this with it and yeah. and like treat it in a way and, and i wonder like, if, if there was any consideration for because it felt to me like they were able to mask some of their effects their like vfx with it because like oh, i'm sure yeah anytime like, you can when they're outside yeah. and they're flying around on jetpacks and stuff i was like oh it's probably really easy to hide the guide wires when you have all this stuff going on in the frame and just like i don't know the, it, 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 things were a little muddled at times uh, of high action and it felt like it would probably be easier to yeah to, to make certain effects work better uh, that could be the case um and maybe that was part of the decision but uh, just something else i wanted to mention is that this i think it's an interesting choice i think it's, it gives it its own unique look but at the same time i think it makes it so that when you look at it now as a modern viewer it kind of get, makes it like there's something about it makes it feel so abnormal that it doesn't it doesn't necessarily um, seem like it was well shot necessarily or yeah. that, that it looks good like it kind of doesn't look no great. yeah i'm not going back to this movie and 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 going oh my god look how look how beautiful this movie is you right. know it's it because it's not and that's it, kind of a shame um and it felt yeah. like they were trying to do their own version of, of a, like a blade runner but you go back and look at the original Blade Runner and it looks way better than this movie, in my opinion. And unfortunately, like, I know the decision was made, but unfortunately, like, color, people just like color. Like, color exactly. is interesting to look at. And so, like, you know, the neons in Blade Runner mixed with contrasting the sort of, like, dark streets that are always wet because it's raining. And, and like, that's just, I don't know. There's something that, that, like, going back to watch that, you're just like, holy shit, this world is, something yeah. about the world feels more real. And Well, in... in it's really interesting that you say that they bleached the film because it feels like a, that's a descriptor I might use to describe how it looks. It looks yeah. bleached. Um, right. So I, let's move on though, because I don't want to. I don't want to harp too much on the, just the look of it. Well, let's talk about the world in general, like the world yeah. building that went on, the sort of inventions and things like that. Because um, you know there was like there was talk of like flying police and and some of those things in the short story, but like all this world that they created. Um, I think there's a lot of hard work put into it, and I think this, a lot of the visuals are cool and interesting. Yeah. But something about it doesn't—it doesn't like stick in my mind. Like as you mentioned, like a Blade Runner, like so the sort of like the flying cars in Blade Runner, the giant, the giant like billboards that are moving and all that mm. kind of stuff. Um, 
there are just things that I look at and I think like, oh, that's Blade Runner. Whereas when I look at this, this could be like, oh, is that iRobot? Is that some mm -hmm. other like science fiction, slightly futuristic movie? I can see that. Um, I, I do feel like the sort of, you know, orchestral, orchestral uh, touchscreen that isn't a touchscreen. He's got the gloves on. Like, that's something I always remember about this movie. Like, one of the Definitely. first things that pops into my head when I think about Minority Report is him standing in front of that screen doing all the hand motions. Um, and then the pool where they keep the precogs. Um, mm -hmm. And the look of that, the sort of symmetry of that, the the way they call it the temple, and it's sort of um, shot in a way to sort of evoke, I think, sort of a like a divinity Holy, um, yeah. that that really works. Um, and then there's a couple other bits of tech, you know, like I remember the street scenes being cool and the way that the the cars look. Um, for the most part, I, I I really liked that. There there are times where it got a little bleached out, but. Um, I remember thinking like, it's cool how they all, all these cars appear to, appear to be self-driving. And I was thinking like, yeah, that's the way if we're ever going to have flying cars that look anything like this sort of thing. They're going to have to be fully autonomous for safety. Um, cause you just don't want people out there flying a massive vehicle, <laughs> you know, yeah. you know, 16 year old with their driver's license. So it, right. there are limitations. And I think having them being fully automated, like they mostly appeared to be here, um, is a way to get around it. Um, and so I thought that was cool. It was funny how they had all this tech, but then they would do these funny things like uh, he would say like, oh, bring me that over here. And he'd tell the guy and he'd have to like physically remove a, like a stick of glass with an image on yeah, it, walk it so over funny. to the machine and slide it in to get it to him. <laughs> and I just thought that was so funny. Um, little things like that felt very old fashioned. Um, but I did love like the VR um, cafe thing that they go to later. I thought it was really cool. Um, mm -hmm. There's just a lot of fun tech stuff going on here, and uh, I do have to give them props, but I know it was 2002, so it's like some of this stuff was starting to happen, but it felt prescient in a lot of ways, and, um, you know, that's always cool in a sci-fi story, and it's you kind of can fact-check them 20 years down the road and go, like, how much right. of this came true, and, you know, mm -hmm. it's, of course not everything's going to be right, you know, where they'll have things wrong, like, but, the, like the newspaper is funny, like, of course we're not going right. to have a newspaper because we all have phones now. But right. they didn't realize how prevalent smartphones were going to be in 2002, which was like kind of the dawn of the iPhone starting to come out right around that time. So um, maybe you should have foreseen it. But like a moving, if you look at an iPhone as like a moving newspaper, it kind of is that. But it was funny to see a man holding a newspaper with like digital <laughs> ads on it and stuff. It was like, okay. Well, it's just, yeah, know. Harry Potter. They were like, oh, <laughs> Harry Potter, right? Like the moving <laughs> moving pictures and everything. Yeah. A uh, couple of scenes that I definitely want to talk about. So the, the opening scene of this movie um is is i would say amazing it's it's so it's so cool it's a snapshot yeah. of what the movie is going to be yep um tells you everything you need to know about the way that it works and the best part about it is it doesn't necessarily tell everything is that it's showing which i talk about constantly mm -hmm. on this podcast is like um we're seeing him see the crime we're seeing the balls be created and we're seeing like oh this person is going to kill this person yeah and then he it's a rush and there's we see the time how much time he has left until it happens brilliant like, idea to make it a crime of passion something mm -hmm. that still occurs and you have and, and i love the idea because it's really clever in a way of having it be like uh it, it comes up fast and you have very little time to prevent it from happening mm -hmm. um which if you think about it if 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 a uh, prophecy is real, that shouldn't matter, right? But the implication that it does already to me implies that this system is fallible, um, which is important mm -hmm. because we learn that it is, right? Right. Well, it's because yeah, there's no there's no time to think. Like you have to react. 
Right. To, no matter what news you get, like there's no time. And, to- and, and it shows that there's a malleability to our futures. Because if, if our futures are immalleable, then you could know that someone was going to murder someone 20 years from now, even if it was a crime of passion, because it was always going to happen. But by saying that it, 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 they only know about it 20 minutes beforehand shows that there is some level of mutability there that, that um, immediately throws the whole system into question. So the uh, precogs, let's talk about the precogs a little bit. There is something interesting that I read that I wanted to talk about. Did you know that the precogs in this, uh, in this story, in this movie, had the names changed uh, because each of, the, each of them represents a famous mystery writer? Right. I did read that. Do you want to you okay. share them with me? Dashiell Hammett? Yep. I've heard of them. Yeah. And then, and then, of course, Sir Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha mm-hmm. Christie. So, yeah, you got Agatha, Arthur, and uh, Dash, I think they say. So, yeah. Dash, yeah. And, and they, don't, they don't lay that out in the movie, so you just have to have read about that later um, or make right. that jump of that connection. But I think it's cool. Like, it is very cool. cool yeah. little shout out to Again, them. and I think it's Spielberg, like, like, I think there's a ton of homage in this movie to, yeah. to mystery, to sci-fi, to... Um, filmmakers to writers i think i think it's very cool so i know we have a lot of scenes we want to talk about but should i get into sort of my overall criticisms of this movie go for it yeah to me it felt like this movie didn't know what kind of movie it was or what kind of movie it wanted to be and so it it tonally felt inconsistent to me part of it i and and I'm not saying that my criticisms, if 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 implemented, would have made this movie sell more, or be more of a blockbuster. Um, mm-hmm. But it might have made it better, at least in my opinion, better in in you know purely qualitative sense. And and that to me was was that it felt like there were times where Spielberg th- leaned heavily into his like, I guess I'm kind of making an Indiana Jones type movie, so I'm going to put in a big Indiana Jones sequence now. Um, and, and one of the key examples of this, uh, a, a sequence that I think could entirely be removed is the car. And I don't think the movie would, would suffer from it is the battle in the car factory. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very Indiana Jones. It's kind of mm-hmm. silly. You literally have Whitwer and Anderton getting into this silly fist fight while they're on top of a swinging like crane thing and falling into a car as it's being put together. And there's a few of these moments. Um, some work better than others, but it felt very much like we got to have really cool high action stuff for the trailers to get people to come see this in the theaters because we want this to be a big blockbuster action movie. Whereas I think it, this movie is only an action movie on the surface and really is much more of a cerebral sci-fi thriller mm-hmm. with a mystery at the heart. And those elements are what this movie really is. And so it felt frustrating to me at times when it would get into this action movie stuff a little much. And it would feel self-indulgent in a way. And it would feel like it curated in a way that made me think like they thought we want to make this movie, sell, make a bunch of money. And here's a way we can make it happen. I do think that like some of the fight scenes were were cool. But I agree with you because I, I think they were... I, I think they sh- most of them should have been a lot shorter. Yeah. I think most of them should have been like a skirmish or something like that, but it turned into like extended sequences like you're talking about. Um, but I actually drew a conc- like a similarity to, I felt like this movie when it's at its best is kind of leaning into the memento of it all. Like it felt a lot like in, at times, like there were moments that felt like memento where like hmm. a mystery was on top of a mystery on oh, top okay. of a mystery. Yeah. And when you think you figured it out, 
they pulled the rug out from under you to reveal another thing that that's like a you know a monkey wrench in the and the whole thing that that changes your opinion on how where things are going and i think my prime example of that is when well two is when um witwer confronts the director is one of the moments where you're like, oh, Whitwer has like some information, like he's confronting the director in that scene right before he's killed by the director. And then the other one is when he, when um, Anderton commits the crime anyway, but it's because the guy pulled the trigger and so everyone thinks he killed him. Mm -hmm. So like the crime technically still took place in the eyes of everyone else, but it really didn't in the eyes of us because we saw our main character not actually do it. Yeah. Um, so those are like the two moments where it's like, I think... That's when it's best. It's like another layer being pulled back, yeah and, yeah, and like revealing another mystery. And and that's what the movie is, I think, at its heart. And it's frustrating because I think about these other like great sci-fi films that people be- are like beloved, like Blade Runner and, and others. And you just don't hear people also say, yeah, hey, a minor- minority report is right there, you know? Yeah. And I think part of that is that it doesn't quite realize what kind of movie it has the potential to be. And it really needs to lean into all that stuff. And and what we don't need is is sequences of Anderton sort of like there's a part where he runs up the side of a of like a pillar and does a backflip onto the shoulders of the man who was holding him and then leaps off of his shoulders up onto something and it's like wait he's a fucking ninja now like oh that sequence by the way with the uh, jetpacks was was another one where i was just it went on way too long and yeah. it was kind of some of like, that was cool know. some of it was not cool <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and like i'm i'm a fan of the spider sequence like that's cool him hiding from the tech i want to talk about that scene for sure i think that's really good um, so, so yeah, it's not all the moments and, and even some of the, like some of the car chase stuff was pretty fun. Um, but then that brings me to another thing that kept rearing its head. And that was these like odd moments of humor that felt m- like the filmmaker, maybe not trusting the audience to buy into sort of a bleak world. And so it kept in trying to inject humor in ways that felt really weird and sort of tone, like I was saying, tonally inconsistent. So one example is when he leaps off the car and he flies to the like garden and he's in this like yoga studio yeah. and a yeah. woman comes walking up to him in like, a yoga pose. And then mm-hmm. um, later with some of the stuff that goes on with like the, 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 the plants and the, the, the woman when he's talking to her um, and she's behaving sort of strangely. Um, you have a lot of the stuff that goes on with the, the doctor later, um, and the, the gags that they keep pulling around things being dirty and the, the, the rotted food. And, um, I don't know. It's just like these weird bits of humor that kept getting injected into the movie that didn't always work. Yeah. I thought that the character that was running the sort of, um, pleasure factory or whatever that thing was called. What was that? Like the, Are you talking about like the VR cafe thing? Yeah, yeah, the cafe on? thing. Uh, that character as a as as a whole was just really there for the jokes, you know. Like yeah. The, the uh, but but in a movie that didn't necessarily need but it. I, or... But I I don't know. I kind of liked I kind of liked him though. <laughs> Did you? We- weirdly, I kind of liked him because like I don't know. He was he he. It felt like a re- he felt like a real person. He just was like kind of crazy you're saying like someone of, who would run that cafe would act like right. that kind of thing he yeah. could be like that and, and i loved the way that he reacted to the precog being there um right. and how he immediately was like crossing Bowing his heart and like yeah. telling her he's like you know i didn't do those things you think i'm gonna or i won't do the things you think i'm gonna do and i didn't do the things that i did um right. and just like a lot of that stuff was really funny and and that was some humor that i thought worked 
But yeah, there. I don't know. I, I have other ones noted here. When we first meet the doctor and he's got this big booger in his nose and he's like, oh, you know, it'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And I don't know. Just Yeah. It's like there's a lot of gross out stuff in this movie, in, like interestingly enough. Uh, let's talk about that scene that you mentioned, though, the spider scene, because I think the, the, the choice to like take his eyes away and the, first of all, the choice to swap out the eyes is, is an interesting one. And then um, the whole scene with like the bandage over his head and he's got like the ropes to find his way around. The spiders are on their way in. He's trying to block them and then he gets under the water and then, you know, he risks opening his eye and eventually he gets it scanned, even though yeah. he's not, he could go blind, which I think would have been interesting to have him blind in one eye because yeah. of the fact that he opened one eye early. Like, I don't well, know. And, and, and I love the, the motif of vision and it feels maybe a little unfocused <laughs> um but there's definitely a lot about like you know the blind man who sells him drugs and the drugs are for clarity and mm-hmm. how scanning your eyes is the way to identify you and you can change your identity by changing your eyes and then having the vision of the future is this it's all about you know wanting information and the power of information i don't know there's just a lot going on with eyes and uh, these little spiders I-, I liked how they like worked in concert with each other opening grates for each other um, there's the shot of like, it's like above and they, and like, I see this, you see this sometimes in, in, in films, but, um, it can be, it can be done effectively in a way that I like. And this is one where it, it, the toy box type thing. Yeah. You're like looking down into this yeah. from overhead and you see all these different people and engaging mm-hmm. with the little spiders. I um, love that. And like most of that, like that, the, and the reason I love it is because it's like a Spielberg Warner, you know, like he's so famous for these. So he's just rolling on these scenes and like, you know, they had to build the set and like the blocking and the sort of coordination that needs to go on and the, the, like everybody's getting their eyes scanned and going back to their arguments and that kind mm-hmm. of thing. That scene is, I think all in all, that spider scene with the bandage and the Anderson running around blind and trying to figure out what, like, you know, what he's going to do. Uh, tense scene. And I think, I think it's really effective. Probably one of my favorites of the whole movie. Yeah. I did remember one of the other uh, sort of silly moments, and that was when the jetpack sears a, a, a rack of steaks when they're yeah. fighting in somebody's yeah. house. Those are the kind of moments that were a little bit like, it, it was like trying to inject the fun action-adventure genre of Indiana Jones into this mm-hmm. movie that, to me, just never felt like that fit here. Um, and, and maybe other people would like totally disagree with me, and that's that's fine. It's just personally, I wanted... like. It, it stole some of the seriousness of the narrative away. Um, and it sort of tried, it felt like at times they were trying to elevate him into this over the top, larger than life action hero, where I, whereas I wanted Anderton to be much more grounded personally. Mm-hmm. Um, well, is it just, I, I think that it's not to say that like there shouldn't be humor in serious stories. I think you're just saying there's too much of it and maybe some of it's a little hammy, right? Well, and, and those moments were silly. Like there's a different kind of humor. Like the guy in the, in the VR cafe, um, I don't know. It's 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 like a character based humor, and it and it, and it makes sense for this world. Whereas the yoga thing and the searing of the stakes and some of that stuff, it was it was very almost. I don't know if you'd call it slapstick. I don't know if that's the right term, but um, it just was silly humor, and it would always sort of take me out of it. Like, why do we have this really silly? Like, can, like I don't know. Like, can you imagine? In, you know, in Blade Runner, the final fight against you know um, the android, and then something silly happened like that happened like it would just be weird if like all of a sudden the tone completely shifted for a moment so we could have this laugh at something ridiculous well so and like speaking of the tone of of some of the movie how do you feel about the relationship with like the reason he got into the precog stuff because of what happened to his son and and like 
I think a lot of that worked and, and like yeah, this idea of him watching the home movie stuff and, and I, I specifically like his wife's character a lot more in this because yeah. there's, they, there's like a real relationship. Well, there and the son than, thing didn't happen in the short story. That's right. fully invented for the movie. And I think it was great. And I think that works really well. And it, and it's in keeping with Spielberg's sort of like broken home uh, narrative in a lot of his movies. And having Anderton be this broken down drug addict who is fully bought into the system because he doesn't want it to happen to someone else. And he has this personal stake and he feels like whenever he's preventing murders, he's like doing justice to, for his son. They don't come out and say that they kind of do, but they don't really, but like that's all there. And I think it all works because it sets him up to be a character who should not turn his back on the system. Yet the narrative um, is designed in a way to make him question and, yeah. you know, I, I think that works really well. And, and that's a perfect way to set them up. All right. So I think there's definitely like one massive thing that we need to talk about. Uh, I want to get your take on. There is something that happens in this that kind of gives some ambiguity to the story. And it happens near the end when Anderton is captured. Uh, the person who as he's going away, the person is telling him, you know, as you're as you're being put to sleep in this, it's kind of a rush. They say you have visions, your life flashes before your eyes, that all your dreams come true. And this is like as he's going into the machine that's going to mm. like have him wander. And the, I guess the question is, is the rest of the movie just him under and in prison still? Or is it actually <laughs> all happening as it as it happens? I did not think about that, but you're right. Um, I, I think those kind of discussions are fun to have. Um, I think they could have been playing with that idea, but um, I'm less interested in trying to think of the movie that way because it sort of negates everything that happens at the end and it makes right. it hard to kind of engage with in a way that I that I like to, I don't know. So the, the movie departs from, because there's kind of this happy tie it with a bow ending in the movie versus the, the sort of ending that we get in the story. And I just right. wonder like, was it, I, I think it's definitely there to raise questions, whether you want whichever side you land on. I think the more interesting one is that it plays out as it does, even if it is kind of neat and orderly. Mm. But the idea that it could be either or is is at least something nice that I think he had to be, Spielberg had to know that people were going to think that because it, it does seem like something that on repeat viewings you would definitely pick up on. I really, I do like that because we, there are a few things you could say to back it up. Um, they wake him up and he's at the party already. And it felt like, how long's this party been going on for? How, how quickly could he get over there? And so there's right. a little bit of like a dream quality to it in a way that I think like I went able to, you know, in, in film, you forgive a lot of this stuff because you're like, oh, you assume it's being cut for time or whatever. But mm -hmm. if you wanted to say maybe this is all hallucination or a dream he's having, um, there is something to be said for that that could back it up, I guess. That's kind of fun. Well, I guess, and, and like the counter argument to it that I saw someone say online was, if that was the case, wouldn't his son in some fashion still have been alive or something ultimately? You know, like wouldn't he have, as he goes into like a dream where everything comes true for he him. He does have a new baby on the way at the end. That's true. So, yeah. you know what I mean? Like his life has been repaired and he, you know, the last time we see him, he's with, he's back with his wife again and she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. So yeah. in that sense, he is sort of fashioning, refashioning his life. I don't know. That is really interesting because I think there is a lot of stuff that can back it up. But I think we have to kind of set that aside because like that's a whole different way of reading the end of this movie um, mm -hmm. that kind of prevents you from being able to engage with it as face value. 
um, which is the 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 reveal of the plot to. It was funny too because it was like, oh, all you have to do is perfectly recreate this crime based off of the vision so that people like it seemed like it was a lot harder than they were making it out to be but um maybe plausible he could do that i don't know um but yeah i i like it it was twisty you know um it, it was it was sort of surprising and i don't know it was fun it was fun to see him get his comeuppance and, and get confronted at the end yeah, I like it. And and I think it fit, fits in with what I was talking about before, where like every time you think you've, the mystery has been solved and you know why or how something happened, it's just like the the reveal is is usually going to throw you for a loop. So what do we think of the, uh, the this idea that like in the, the polar opposite of the story, precog program has been shut down, uh, yep. all that kind of stuff at the very end here? Well, and, and that's to me, that's Spielberg saying like the system isn't fair. I think it's an ethical quandary, but like if you could predict with 99.9% accuracy that someone was going to murder somebody and you could, you could prevent that from happening by putting them away. Is that 0.1% enough of a percent to say that we should scrap that? Like it's not worth it. But the 0.1% um, of convicting someone who wouldn't have actually done it. And what's crazy is like our system is already like that. We, people get arrested falsely all the time and convicted falsely for all the time for crimes they didn't actually commit. But mm-hmm. to some extent, like there has to be a number there, right? Like there has to be, and it's hard to think about, but like we want to think that things are infallible, but like nothing is. Mm-hmm. Um, so to hold it to that level of it has to be infallible. I don't know. It just seems difficult. I think the, the, but the idea of stopping murder, like the, the 0.1%, is it worth it? You know, it, the idea of, of like murders being over. Well, that's the utilitarian question. It's like the, the, um, the trolley problem kind of deal. Like, do you throw the switch and, and, and you know, save the many sacrifice the one? Do you, do you let some people go to jail and, falsely for something they wouldn't have committed just to prevent right. all the other ones that would have happened. And it's like if if you can prove that it's there won't be human error as which is another another big factor in this is that it's human error not the precog. You know, it's it's because someone took advantage of the system. It's not because of the actual precog stuff that was going on. Um if like each minority report was looked at on a case by case basis and then I mean I guess then you're also adding in the the, the human element but maybe if the, when the minority report comes up there's investigations done things like that but I, I don't know there might not be enough time all kinds of things like that and, and I think the the thing that is like the monkey wrench that gets thrown into all of this is that the realization that you have essentially enslaved three human beings right yeah. in order to do this and mm-hmm. we, we get that um, that tour guide talking about oh they they get to have the greatest access to these gems and they can you know, spend time at leisure from the safety and privacy of where, you know what I mean? Like just complete lies about these right. beings who live, these people who live in a tank and you know what I mean? Like, and then at the end we see them sort of enjoying life in their cabin. And, um, that is to me, one of the things that is like a complete deal breaker is like the idea that you've enslaved people and you're forcing them to witness murders over and over again. And like no amount of saving life seems worth it to me if that's what you, if that's the price you're paying for it. Yeah, I agree with that. The uh, you mentioned the cabin at the end. Uh, apparently, that's a direct homage to Blade Runner. The, the oh, sort of like yeah. the way that this the camera like sweeps like falls away from them as they're like living their life. Um, I want to shout out Samantha Morton, um, who we just covered on John Carter. 
um, mm-hmm. because I think she she gives a really great performance here. Um, I, I, maybe is a little much at times, but for the most part, she's really engaging. Um, the way she like will stare off in like a corner of the room or into the distance while something's going on, but then clearly she's reacting to what's going on around her. I thought it was a really powerful way to imply her sort of sight beyond sight that she has, right? Like she is experiencing what's going on, but she's also seeing the future of it, like the immediate future of it. And um, that character just seemed otherworldly and, but also vulnerable and um, I don't know, just really engaging. And I think that performance has to be nailed for this movie to work um, as well as it does. And I think she did a great job. You just reminded me of something. There's a shot when they're embraced. Um, Anderton and the precog Agatha. Agatha they're yeah. like they're 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 like hugging each other. And there's a shot with like uh, I don't know, just the way that it's framed and the way that like the light is coming from either direction and just their faces illuminated. Um, that that is like an image of. I feel like maybe it's on a, one of the movie posters or something. Of this movie. I agree. I was about to say. I think it's on a poster, but maybe I think it's, it's not, on a poster. But that is a beautiful shot. And like yeah. I've always that that I always think of that shot when I think of it's that and the hands like doing the the hands that I always think of when I think of. Well, and board. and there's there is a wonderful moment that sort of becomes weird, but it, I, I think is truly fantastic, and that's when. Uh, Agatha is explaining to them how she can see the alternate future of their son's life had he lived. Mm-hmm. And when she's like laying that out to them, it's just like devastating them. Um, but also like, it's like that you can clearly, it's like that happy, sad and, and it's cathartic for them and it's powerful. And then I love that she turns that to say like, that's what my mom wanted essentially. And we got it. That's why I've been showing this to you. And really this whole thing of like her showing him and asking, do you see, has is, is all been about her own story, which makes sense. And I just love that moment. I think it's really powerful, well acted. And then we get sort of the weird, uh, you know, moment where she's like, I'm sorry, John, but you're going to have to run. And then he's like, what? And she's like, she just goes, and she just like screams yeah. it. And it's like she screams it for so long that the cops land, get out of their car, get out of their vehicle, come inside the building, come up to the top floor, and she's like still screaming it, and he's still standing there going like, what do I do? <laughs> they capture him. And I'm like, why couldn't you have like, like said something a little sooner? You know what I mean? Like you waited till there was apparently either 30 seconds left or maybe you just screamed for two minutes straight. Like, I don't know. It was kind of weird. Um, didn't really give him any chance to escape, right? Which like after everything that had gone out of the mall, it felt like she could have done that. So then, like, I got to thinking, like, could you read it as her, or like maybe she knew he needed to be captured in order for everything to play out the way that it did. Um, so you could maybe see it that way, like she's sort of pulling the strings, like she, you're gonna get captured, and then your wife's gonna confront him, and then all this stuff's gonna happen, and eventually I'll get justice, and I know that because I can see the future. And mm-hmm. you know, obviously, he can't be dreaming if that's true, but. Um, I felt like that could be a way of reading the ending here is that really Agatha is sort of the puppet master pulling this, all the strings for this and making it all happen. I mean, yeah, I could see that too. Definitely see that. Uh, do you want to end by talking about Tom Cruise's performance? Do you have anything else you wanted to say? Yeah, let's talk about Tom Cruise. I I mean, he's a weird guy, you know. Um, we, I think we've addressed it before with our with our uh, All You Need Is Kill slash Edge of Tomorrow coverage. Yeah, Edge of Tomorrow coverage, we talk about him. Um, but he's good at certain things, and I think he um, he's a good action movie hero, action movie uh, star. 
He's got good range, and I think he shows pretty shows it pretty well here. I think he's solid. Um, I don't think he was underutilized. I think he was. I think they knew what they had in him, and they used him well. And so, in that sense, I think this is a good Tom Cruise movie. Um, Colin Farrell, although he's definitely very young here, to me, he's the one where I felt like he was pretty underutilized. But maybe that's just where I've seen him go in the, like later movies. It feels like he's cap- capable of so much more than we get from this character. Um, but he plays this sort of like, you're not supposed to like him at all early. And then he kind of turns around by the end and you like him. But like early in the movie, he's chewing gum. He's grinning when he's not supposed to be. He's being, he's like barging in and going places he's not supposed to go. He's shitting on everyone's parade and just, you know, he, he plays that character pretty well, I guess. Um, but then, yeah, I don't know. It just felt like he, he, he didn't have a lot of depth. Whereas I, I think that Colin Farrell is capable of, of playing characters with a lot more depth than this. But, you know, like I said, early on in his career. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. What, what were your thoughts on Tom Cruise and others? Um, I agree with the Colin Farrell comment. I, I think that he I think he's amazing. I think he's a great actor. Um, he's definitely one of those ones that I think people he's definitely underrated. I would just say overall, um, he's had some great performances and some really bizarre and awesome movies. Uh this was one where it was kind of just like a serviceable performance because it was what he was given. Um, a Tom Cruise, I, I think it's just as much as like, I don't agree with the guy, uh, you know, in the real world, I don't, you know, he's kind of a weirdo, crazy person. Um, <laughs> there's no denying that like he yeah. is, he is a movie star and he's, he's worked with some of the greatest directors of multiple generations. Um, he's continued to keep a really high level of, of acting and like he, he always gives believable performances. He, he doesn't, maybe doesn't disappear into roles like somebody like Gary Oldman or someone like that, but he is always believable in the role. You're always like that, that's Tom Cruise he and he's given kind of all. plays himself in a lot of movies. I think you could yeah. argue. Yeah. Um, he's like an Arnold or a lot of these action iconic action movie heroes. They tend to sort of play a version of themselves in every movie they're in. But he has like he has shown uh, like you said before, he's shown range like he sure. he can do much more than that. Um, but I think typically when people think about him, it's the action star Tom Cruise. Anyway, I thought it was good. I, overall, I really enjoyed this movie. Um, it was fun revisiting it for the umpteenth time. Um, it was it was really cool to, to read the source material as well. I found it interesting by the way that i that uh even petty theft seemingly uh is is seen <laughs> by the precog so like if you steal a pack of gum you better watch out because they're gonna fucking get you yeah it, it, that, and that's in the, sh- in the short story in the movie they I sort of smartly made it only murder right, right. Uh, they had kind of a hand wavy answer as to why but um yeah, yeah, I, I liked it okay and i like that they were engaging with this idea of the divine too throughout of like this isn't just science. This is like, we feel like priests and they feel like they're these seers in the old, oldest sense. And, um, the way people treat the precogs is like otherworldly, holy beings. Um, I don't know. This thought was really fascinating. Um, so I want to kind of, I mean, we're going to take our vote, our, our, uh, our, our new thing we're doing this year where we, mm-hmm. we vote on like where, which, which, which we thought was better, the short story or, you know, the, the source material or the adaptation. But before we do that, um, I want to get your thoughts more on just like this movie as a whole and like where does it sit for you? Because I think it's clear to me that this isn't like one of your favorite movies. It sounds like you like it. Yeah. Um, if it, if it's not one of your favorite movies, like what do you think is holding it back? I mean, things that we've talked about for the most part, I think you were you were spot on with the sort of tonal uh, indecision. I think that 
I I really feel that like the, this there there were very cool components to the world that were memorable, but I felt like the world just didn't feel as lived in as I would have liked. Um, more than that, I think it's also like very the, the movie is very clean, and I think that maybe some more ambiguity to it, and maybe taking it in a and it does seem like they wanted to go in like a dark and gritty route, but like maybe give it more of this sort of uh, the traditional noir like on the streets gritty like. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like for the most part, you kind of always feel like Anderton's a good guy. And I don't mm. think that the ambiguity was really there as much as, I mean, y- y- I think the only reason you really doubt him is because like the prophecy says he's going to kill someone. And in the story or in the film, even more so, because like, you're like, he doesn't kill anybody. He doesn't kill, well, maybe he kills people, but he doesn't kill that person that he was the the prophecy. Well, he doesn't kill anyone actually, does he? Because otherwise there would have been precogs. No. He never right? he never technically kills anyone. The guy kind of kills himself, I guess is what you're arguing with the pistol right. thing. Yeah. Um and then once again the guy at the end kills himself. So, yeah. It, I, it just doesn't it doesn't go as far as I think it could have in order to make it more of a gut punch. I don't know. If they if they had yeah. really leaned into some of these things, I think I think it could have been better. Yeah. And and I just to me, I'm always going to remember this movie as uh something that it was it was a good adaptation. It had lofty goals it added a lot to this story that um i think worked well um had had some good performances some really nice ideas was kind of ugly um in its bleached out look um which at times wasn't bad but then other times uh, stands out and then sort of has an identity crisis in my opinion like i touched on before i i think it it struggles to to figure out whether or not it is a high-flying action movie um, or a, like I said, cerebral, uh, sci-fi thriller. And I want more of the latter than the former. Um, so for me that, that does hold it back a little bit. It's a movie I really enjoy and I've seen probably, I don't know, six, seven, eight times now. I think at this point I will revisit, revisit in the future. You know, I think it's a fun movie. Um, I think it's got a lot of great ideas. I like that it's sort of, uh, meticulously plotted in a way that that i think is i always impresses me in movies when it's like clear that that they had to make all these things fit just a certain way to make the story work um i love all of that and um so for that reason it's i think it's a good movie um but yeah it it keeps it from being like a top tier film for me yeah Uh, i think with that just roll right in what's what's your pick are you you taking the book in this instance are you taking the film well, I'm going to uh, break with my tradition of one episode. Uh, I'm going to go with the film here. Um, and as much as I um, have pointed out some flaws in this movie, um, I think the my experience reading the short story left a lot to be desired. Um, I, like I said earlier, I just kind of struggled to really connect with the characters in the short story. I didn't feel like I was experiencing the world um, I was I was impressed with the ideas. I was impressed with the sort of foresight and the big questions that were being raised. But beyond that, I, I I don't know. I'm starting to wonder if I'm maybe just not the biggest Philip K. Dick fan, at least of his actual prose, uh, because mm-hmm. that's kind of what was what was kind of knocking me out of the story over and over again. I, I was f- just finding difficulty, sort of getting vested. So yeah, I'm gonna go with the with the movie. Yeah, I mean, for similar reasons, I'm going with the movie. I think that as much as we've talked about how the movie didn't necessarily, it still didn't make good on a lot of the things that it could have. I don't. I think that they're they're like with the world and like the promise of of what this idea presents. 
I think the movie did a lot more than even the short story did. Um, so just if, for that reason, and because as we've talked about, like the short story, just it, 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 was, it was, I think it's a great idea and great framework for a story. And then the execution just isn't really there. And I think that's part of why Spielberg running with it and kind of adding some of these things, which I think most of them did work. Uh, a lot of the additions I thought, I thought did work. So I think yeah. I'm going movie this time. All right. So we're coming down on the side of the movie being better um officially for this project um Mm -hmm. like we said last time if you didn't hear us um this is something new we're trying this season um on the podcast and really it's not to be definitive in any way um but it's more just to to give us something to talk about here at the end of the episode at the end of our project and uh we want to hear from you as well so please write in ink to film at gmail.com or comment on our social media posts and let us know if you agree disagree and why I'm definitely curious to know your guys' reasoning. If you think that the story is way better, you know, tell us why. I'd be really curious to hear that. Um, and we're going to keep doing that, I think, going forward, at least for, you know, this season, see how it see how it works and see if people like it. So also, if you'd like to give us any feedback on it, we're, we're all we're open ears uh, for that sort of thing. Um, and make sure to stick around for the very end of the episode where we're going to talk about our next project for next week. Uh, but before that, uh, we want to thank our patrons for supporting this podcast and making, uh, making this thing possible to continue by financially supporting us on Patreon. Uh, go to patreon.com slash ink to film and you'd find out how to become one yourself and see all the bonus content we have available on there. Yeah. And also connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram active on all of those and join our council of inklings because we post polls, which decided our, this project yeah. Minority Report was, was yeah, de- by decided poll. by a poll in the, uh, in the group. And we also post news. There's the news about the the thing sort of oh, uh, yeah. that's coming out that, that we posted pretty quickly after we found out about that. Um, remake of John Carpenter's The Thing. John right, but it's also story. like kind of not a remake. It's like going to be based on like other other like literature. So it's going to be interesting. I mean, fingers crossed it's good, but I, The Thing is a high bar. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. <laughs> yep. Anyway, uh, and if you liked this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever podcast app you use. Um, It's a great way to get the word out for us and get other people to find us. Also, make sure you're subscribed or follow on Spotify or whatever it is. Um, Those numbers tend to factor a lot into whether or not the algorithm decides to show our podcast to other people. So whatever platform you use, make sure you're, you're subscribed. Thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. So let's talk about next week's project. We are going to be covering Water for Elephants by Sarah Gruen. And uh, we're excited to get into it. It's a book I've never read. It's a movie I've never seen. Um, So I'm going in blind and it was commissioned by one of our patrons. Uh, So, you know, hopefully you guys check it out. It's going to be our sort of Valentine's project, too. I hear that there's maybe some romance going on. So hopefully that'll feel appropriate. Yeah, I I haven't read the book. And honestly, I'm so unfamiliar with it, even though I've seen, I think I caught like a portion of it on HBO at some point and like don't really remember it very well. So I am interested. I'm happy that someone commissioned it because I feel like it's one of those things that I probably wouldn't have, you know, revisited without without this. So it's a a great reason. That's the beauty of these commissions, right? Like they often are, are having us cover things that we wouldn't have chosen on our own. Because um, right. either they're on our radar or it's just something that uh, we didn't know people were interested in or what have you. Um, but usually it's a great experience. Thinking back about like en- Enemy Mine was a movie I would have never watched. You know what I mean? A, right. a book I would have never read if someone hadn't commissioned it. So, yeah, if you want to find out how to 
uh, do that, definitely check out our Patreon and find out how that, how it was done. Um, but I'm excited about it. Hopefully you guys join us next week when we talk about Water for Elephants, the novel, and then the following week when we talk about the movie. But until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.